First Kings chapter 22. As we come now to the final chapter here in our study in First Kings together. Last time in chapter 22, we went down as far as verse 18 together. So tonight we'll pick up there in verse 19 and move our way through the remainder of the chapter and as well through the remainder of the book. Uh, one thing I wanted to put out to you as we wrap up this uh, last chapter now in First Kings uh, I think this is a great quote. I found this in the midst of uh, preparing this week. It says this, uh, The greatest judgment God can send is to allow people to have their own way and then suffer the consequences. You know, I think that is a really fitting statement in regards particularly to these chapters. And really, as we look now at the end of Ahab's life, uh, this man who the Bible has told us that there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, that he behaved abominably, he followed idols, he introduced idolatry into the nation and all types of immoral and evil practices, promoting sin. Again, not just was he someone who himself practiced sin, but he was someone who was actually promoting sin. And you know, it's one thing to live evil yourself. It's one thing to do wrong things because you choose to live your life that way. It's a whole nother thing when your activities or your level of influence actually causes other people to follow in your ways. Or more than that, perhaps pressures or promotes other people that they should follow your evil ways because of what you're doing in front of them and your activities or your level of influence, for example. And Ahab certainly was a man who was greatly guilty of that. We've seen in our recent studies together, at this point, God has now pronounced very clearly judgment against Ahab. God has made it very evident. He's given multiple opportunities to Ahab to repent. He's tried to show grace to Ahab. Uh, and after continuous personal evil and his wicked reign as a king, making other sin, God has pronounced judgment against his life. We saw that. And the events now leading up to the judgment and the removal of Ahab, not only the removal of his life as he'll die, but his removal from the throne is really what we now come to. And if you remember last time in the first 18 verses of chapter 22, what we saw happen there is we were told that uh, in the third year of Jehoshaphat, who was king of Judah in the south, and Jehoshaphat we know was one of the good and godly kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, that he went up and he paid a visit to King Ahab, who was the king of Israel there in the northern kingdom. The reason for this, probably most likely, we're told that these two made an alliance through marriage. And again, many times in that day, uh, there were uh, marriages that were political in nature, that you would marry your children in such a way that it would sort of ensure uh, safety and that you wouldn't be attacked from another kingdom because of the interest level that uh, your child was a part of that kingdom. And so uh, King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat, their children have been married. And again, perhaps this was a visitation uh, of the children, whatever. It says that Jehoshaphat went and visited King Ahab there in Israel. And why they were there, Ahab, the king of Israel, was discussing among his counselors that they ought to go and take over the territory 
It says, verse 3, of Ramoth Gilead uh, and take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And in the midst of those conversations with this counselor, remember Ahab then proposed to Jehoshaphat, hey, why don't you and your armies and your military forces join together and let's enter into a military alliance here and go forth. And Jehoshaphat, though he was a good and godly king, one of his clear weaknesses, and look, even the best of men, as we always say, are at men at best. And everybody has their share of weaknesses and flaws and chinks in their armor. And certainly one of those weaknesses for Jehoshaphat was he seemed to be a man, though he was a good and godly man, who didn't have the capacity to tell other people no. Uh, and oftentimes because of that, he would enter into arrangements and partnerships and situations that he should not have got himself involved in. And this became one of those times where basically he just agreed to enter into this conflict with King Ahab, who was a very wicked and ungodly man. It was not God's will that this battle come to pass. And so uh, Jehoshaphat said yes without even seeking the Lord. And that's always a bad thing to do. It's always a bad thing to say yes and then seek the Lord afterwards. We should seek the Lord first before we choose to say yes or no. But Jehoshaphat consented, but he did say there we saw in verse 5 to Ahab, look, why don't we at least inquire of the Lord? Let's at least pray before we enter into this battle. And then look with me in verse 6. Let me just read through the remainder of our verses to kind of set the flow because we're right in the middle of a story as we come into where we pick up in verse 19 tonight. Chapter uh, 22, verse 6 says, Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. And we know these were false prophets. We don't know who they were, but they weren't prophets of Jehovah God. And he said to these prophets that he was employing in his kingdom, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? So they encouraged him, saying, Go up for the Lord. Notice, not capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the Hebrew tetragrammaton for Yahweh or Jehovah. This is Lord. It's the Hebrew word Adonai, which just means master. So it could be master of of what? The master of uh, Baal? Is this referring to Ashtoreth? Just the master, they say, will deliver it into the hand of the king. So Jehoshaphat said, wait a minute. That's not setting right with me. Remember, he was a godly man. He says, is there not a prophet of, notice different term, the Lord, that is the prophet of Yahweh here, that we can inquire of him. Let's, let's ask a prophet of the one true God. That's the God that I worship and I'd like to hear from him. Verse 8, the king of Israel said, as we saw, oh, there is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because, remember, he does not prophesy good concerning me but evil and Josephat said let not the king say such things and the king of Israel called an officer and said bring Micaiah the son of Imla quickly and the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat king of Judah having put on their robes sat each on his throne at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria and all the prophets prophesied before them so as they go to get the one true prophet of God they're sitting there on their thrones. They're kind of just passing time. And at this point, all the other prophets are thinking, wait a minute, our prophecy said, go enter into the battle. You're going to have victory. What are you going to go and double check us for? So they just keep trying to reinforce that they should engage in the battle, that they'll experience success. They're all saying the same thing. Verse 11, then we begin to have the prophet with props like we talked about last time. He was really getting into this whole thing. Zedekiah, the son of Chetanah, he made horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, 
With these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. So he's kind of acting out things on top of predicting what's going to happen in the victory. And all the prophets then prophesied, saying the same thing, reinforcing, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper. For now they change the Lord, Yahweh, they say, will deliver it into the king's hand. They get the sense this is what Jehoshaphat wants to hear. So they're going to do whatever they can to encourage them to follow their instructions and go out into this battle. And then verse 13, the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him saying, now listen, the words of the prophets are with one accord to encourage the king. Please, again, he must have been known for kind of contradicting what others would say and taking a stand alone for the truth. Please, he kind of begs him, let your word be like one of them and speak encouragement. In other words, don't discourage the king. Please say what he wants to hear. Don't, don't you know, be so forthright and honest and you always tend to kind of upset the king because you're just such a kind of a straight shooter. You're always direct and you just say what's true and that always upsets the king. And come on, all the prophets, hundreds of them, they're all telling him to go out into the battle. They're all encouraging Ahab to launch out into this attack against Ramoth Gilead. Please Speak encouragement, but Micah AI, as we saw last time, said, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micah AI, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered, go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Now, as we said, there must have been some tone that we can't hear there of sarcasm which was very evident because verse 16, right after he says that, the king says to Micaiah, the true prophet, how many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? In other words, stop, you know, kind of doing what you're doing. I can tell you're mocking me. You're, you're mocking me that I should go and fight. So then verse 17 and 18, where we left, Micaiah said, you want the truth? Here's the truth. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep, that have no shepherd, that is their leader, has been taken away. And the Lord said, These have no master, let each return to his own house in peace. In other words, the leader has been killed in the battle, and therefore the troops scatter as the result. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you what this guy's like? He says that he wouldn't prophesy good concerning me but evil. Verse 19, we pick it up. Then Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Now, what Micaiah is going to do at this point is he's going to reveal what is going on behind the scenes, that is, in the spiritual dimension. He's clearly just given a prophecy to say, Listen, uh, what's evident, and if you want to know the truth, is this. You enter into that battle, that battle is going to be the destruction of your life. Uh, you follow through with that, it's going to, you're going to basically choose to enter into your own death if you go forward into that battle. And we have to, again, understand as we go into these things now here, what we know of Ahab at this, at this point is Ahab is basically someone who has continuously hardened his heart against the truth. Uh, this chapter, as well as other places revealed to us, this is a man at a stage in his life where honestly he does not want to hear the truth. Repeatedly he has demonstrated he has no interest in hearing God's voice. 
He doesn't want to respond to what God's saying to him. God has repeatedly tried to get his attention. God has continuously tried to speak to him. But Ahab's heart is hard. He doesn't want to hear God's will. He doesn't want to hear God's voice or obey God's voice. And what's going to happen now, we're going to see in this chapter, is basically... Ahab has come to a place where God now having to deal with him is in essence going to just give him over to the hardness of his own heart. God's basically going to grant to him what he chooses in his free will. In other words, if you genuinely want to reject me, then ultimately I will stop striving with you. The Bible says that the spirit of the Lord won't strive with man forever. And ultimately God is going to in essence say to Ahab, okay, I will grant you what you've chosen. I will give you what you want. You don't want to hear the truth? Then there's only other op- option, really, if you don't want to hear the truth, and that's to believe lies. Uh, and so here we're going to see what happens behind the scene in the midst of these things. Now it seems there's a vision, a revelation, that Micah, Ai, the prophet, is able to see of what's going on. And the prophet reveals what's going on in the spiritual realm during the time of these things that we're seeing, which gives us insight to what's happening in the spiritual dimension. And let me just say, this is indeed a complex passage. Uh, It's almost somewhat a little kind of eerie and awkward in regards to what we're reading here. But nonetheless, this is what was taking place apparently in the realm of the spirit. So Micah AI verse 19 again said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord, he says, sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. The idea is the different angels, the spirits, and it seems here both holy angels as well as unclean, evil spirits, demonic spirits on the right hand and left hand, sort of you know interacting, coming around the throne of God. And the Lord said, there at his throne, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall, be defeated at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets, as we saw happening as they were encouraging him to go out to battle. And the Lord said to him, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, he says, The Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. So here around the throne of God, we get sort of insight into what's happening in that dimension. It says the spirits are coming and going around the throne of God. Again, both angels that are holy angels that serve God's purposes as well as demonic spirits and again remember during this time even Satan himself does have a level of access to the throne of God to be able to speak before God's throne Satan's rebellion the Bible teaches certainly caused him to be demoted or to be cast out of his position his high-ranking position that he once held when he rebelled against God certainly he lost that position and that rank when he rebelled against God yet he's not been denied access completely to the throne of God at this point in time that will come at a later point but we do know that Satan has some level of access still to the throne of God and to be able to communicate to God for example Job chapter 1 many of us know that story it tells us there in Job chapter 1 verses 6 through 8 
Now, there was a day when the sons of God, referring to the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, who is also an angelic spirit, came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come from? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And then, of course, we know that whole dialogue then starts to happen as basically Satan then says, well, he's just a mercenary. He only serves you because you bless him. And if you take away your protection and your goodness and blessing from his life, he'll curse you to his face. And this whole dialogue uh, results really in God ultimately saying, go ahead. I, I trust my servant. Test him. And God, in a sense, allows or permits a level of access to Satan into Job's life to have some effect and influence upon him in the sense of spiritual warfare. But again, we see there in Job chapter 1 where Satan is having access to the throne of God. To some level, he has access to the throne of God to communicate. The Bible tells us that he's the accuser of the brethren, accusing God's people night and day, bringing accusations. So we learn even Satan and demons do have a level of access to come before God's throne in the spirit realm to communicate. Here, we see God really seeking to unfold, as we talked about, his plan of judgment to remove Ahab as king. And what God is now doing in our text here is really going to give, as I said, Ahab over to the own hardness of his heart because he doesn't want to hear God's voice. Because he doesn't want to hear the truth, God's going to give Ahab his own decision and basically allow him to basically then take the only other option, which is to believe lies. And what we have happening in our text here is a fallen spirit, an evil spirit or demon, it says in the text, offers basically to bring deception forth to destroy Ahab. It says a spirit came forward, verse 21, stood before the Lord and said, I'll persuade him. The Lord said, how are you going to do that? And he proposes what he would do is go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets, that he would go forth and he would put a lie, a deceiving message in the mouth of these false prophets. They weren't true prophets, false prophets, so that they would speak deceptive lies and encouragement to Ahab to go enter into this battle which would bring about his own destruction. And what God does here is he uh, permits, or you might say allows, this lying spirit, this demonic spirit to go forth, put this message into the false prophet's mouth because that activity will ultimately contribute to and actually still align with the ultimate plan of God, which is to judge and dethrone Ahab. So even though this is a demonic spirit, a lying spirit, wanting to do something in such a way, God who rules over all allows even that satanic work, if you would, to take place because God in his sovereignty can still use that to ultimately orchestrate his ultimate plan. His final intention, which is to dethrone Ahab, remove him, and ultimately bring an end to his life, and it would fulfill God's sovereign plan. So God permits this evil work to happen because he can take the effects of it and still bring forth his divine plan in the end. Now, 
certainly we, we learn a few things from this passage. First thing being obviously that God, being the sovereign God he is, who not only rules but can overrule in all things, that God can overrule even evil and wicked things and use them for his purposes still in the end. That God is able to do that. Everything God, listen, everything God allows to exist or permits in any way, God can use to fulfill his plan ultimately. We need to even realize Satan and all of his demons, they only exist because God allows them to exist. I mean, truth be told, the only reason Satan still exists is because God's allowing him to exist still. At any moment, God could do away with Satan. At any moment, God could completely rid. And, and we, of course, we know the ultimate plan that he will be ultimately cast into the lake of fire, that there will be a process of gradual dethroning and removal of Satan. The Bible teaches that. But the only reason Satan and demons even still exist to this day and their activity is allowed is because to a degree, God allows their existence and he allows them to do what they do and their temptations and their evil. Yet God, understand, can even use their rebellion against God, their resistance to the will of God, all of the things that they do that are wrong. God can still use those things to comply with his ultimate ends and the things that he wants to do. That they don't thwart God's plan. Even the most wicked, vile, corrupt, and horrible things that happen from the satanic activity that takes place in the spirit realm that affects things on this earth and ruins people's lives. How wonderful to realize that God can still use those things and overrule and orchestrate and bring about his ultimate plans and purposes still. Now look, as we look at a text like this, it's so important. We have to be careful and remember God is not the author of evil. James 1 tells us that. Uh, he's not the author of temptation to sin in any way on the earth. The Bible tells us that God cannot lie, that it's impossible for God to lie. Yet God, controlling and ruling all, can allow for Satan and even mankind's evil to be used ultimately to fulfill something that he wants to do anyway. And it really is a testament to really God's incredible wisdom and sovereign rulership to coordinate all happenings in the spirit realm and in the temporal and the material realm. The Bible tells us in Psalm 33, verse 10 and 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Paul says something similar in the New Testament, Ephesians 1. Paul says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you hear what the, the Bible teaches? All things, the, the counsels of men, the plans of men, the activities of men, satanic activity, that God takes and uses and works all things ultimately according to the counsel of his will. And it's his will that ends up standing in the end. Look, that's something that I understand in our logical minds. It may be hard to wrap our little, you know, finite brains around. And I'll tell you something. If you try and over scrutinize mentally and figure everything out logically rather than trusting by faith in sovereignty, you'll probably end up just being confused and blaming God wrongly. <laughs> but if you by childlike humble faith say, praise God, <laughs> That though I don't understand everything, that I have a God that rules and overrules in such a way that he can use even the wrath of man 
to still praise him somehow in the end. Praise God that we serve such a God who loves us and is such control that we can rest in that. To me, I find that it's an incredible consolation to realize, yes, there's evil on the earth. Yes, there's sin. Yes, there's satanic activity. But in the end, God gets what he wants still. God does what is in the best interest of his plans and his purposes. And God's never paranoid. God's never looked, I never expected that to happen. I mean, I was really a lot of confidence for your life. But then Satan, now that he's done that with you, oh my goodness. God never does that. The Bible tells us, especially for those of us who are Christians in Romans 8, 28, that we know that God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And how wonderful, because look, for some of us, perhaps we've really been duped in some way by you know, Satan tripping us up and really wreaking some havoc in our life, or we've really made some poor decisions, or we're deceived and living in a lie for a while, or, or maybe in some way some really horrible things have happened to you. I mean, maybe something truly just diabolical and satanic, evil, wicked things have happened in your life that have truly hurt and traumatized you as a human being. But listen, here's the wonderful thing. I can't offer answers for all those things, but I can tell you this answer. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And in the end, God will and can use those things to still bring about what's best and what he wants in the end. What a wonderful thing to be able to rest in that. So God here, able to utilize this situation. I think one other thing before we move on, it's important to take note of in a, in a passage like this, is Ahab reminds us, as I said a, a little bit ago, that God reaches out continually, but apparently there does come a point where God will give a person and can give a person over their own way. And this is what Ahab is a reminder of, that ultimately God gives him over to his desire. Ahab is the poster child for someone who did not want to hear the truth. This chapter is the perfect illustration of that, where again and again, he's trying to get these other prophets to say what he wants to hear because he doesn't want to hear Micaiah say what he needs to hear, which is really God's will and the truth of God's voice. And Ahab is someone who continually kept trying to deny God's voice, shut his ears, refusing to hear what is true and right. And ultimately, God just turns him over to believing the lie here. And again, it kind of reminds us in some ways that it seems to some degree there is some place of a threshold where a person continues to say no to God's voice and refuse God's voice and refuse God's voice and refuse God's voice and I don't know exactly how it works and I don't think we have the right to ever step in to try and give an ultimate determination on that but it does seem there is some threshold where the spirit of the Lord doesn't strive with man forever and ultimately God in the Bible we see it in numerous places somewhat gives man over to their own way. And God ultimately says, okay, if that is what you desire, then I will grant you what you desire. I will honor your free will. Again, Romans 1 teaches this very clearly where people repeatedly, it says they're suppress the truth, they deny God's voice. That is, again, suppressing the truth is like trying to swallow down. You know, I hate to use the illustration, but it's like when you have to vomit. You ever try and swallow back when you have to vomit? It's hard to do, right? And you, you try and keep it down. And that's the idea. People suppress the truth. God is speaking to their conscience and they know so clearly this is the voice of God. 
God's speaking to me and God's speaking to somebody's conscience and they just keep suppressing it and suppressing and ignoring it and doing everything they can to just ignore what they know God's saying to them and they keep suppressing the truth. The Bible says that when people keep doing that and denying God's voice that there does come a time. And again, I can't say where the time is for each person. But there comes a time between them and their God where it says in Romans 1, God just gives them over to a debased mind and their heart becomes darkened because they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie and God gives them over to their own evil desires and lets them have their own way. Look, the Bible teaches in 2 Thessalonians that this is one of the things that's going to happen in the last days when men don't believe the truth and so God allows them to believe a strong delusion and a lie. Look, when you are rejecting the truth of God, here's the bottom line. When you reject the truth and you don't want to hear the truth, there's only one other option. If you don't want to hear the truth, the only other option is to believe lies. It's really not a complicated thing. The astonishing thing is how much God strives with us trying to say what's true to us and continues to patiently bear with us. But the scary thing is there comes a point where even God says, I won't violate your will. And he ultimately may grant us what we want. Again, it goes back to that quote I said at the beginning. This is where I think it's very fitting. The greatest judgment God can send is to allow people to have their own way and then suffer the consequences of their choice. Boy, that's the greatest, if you think of it, some days the greatest judgment God can give to a person is to say, okay, I'll let you have your own way and I will let you suffer the consequences of your own choice. So here, Ahab now hears disaster has been declared against and the false prophets hear this one prophet standing alone saying, this idea of going to the battle and succeeding is not true. Uh, God's declared disaster if you go into that battle. Well, verse 24, Zedekiah, the son of Chiana, who was the one with the horns goring everything, saying that he would gore the Syrians. Hearing this, he went over in the midst of the uh, moment and it says he struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, which way did the spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? So you want to talk about an insult. I mean, he just goes up in front of a bunch of other men. He just slaps them across the face and said, when did, when did the spirit of Yahweh leave me to come and talk through you? Who do you think you are? So he just insults him and he strikes out him. But again, I look at that and I think, you know, so often that's the case. When, you know, when people have a weak argument and they know that they're wrong, that's usually kind of what they do. They tend to strike out and get nasty. And, and so here... This prophet comes and he strikes out and he literally slaps Micaiah across his cheek. Again, you notice his reward for speaking the truth. His reward for speaking the truth is he's wounded by someone else who doesn't want to hear it. Verse 25, and Micaiah said, indeed, you shall see on the day when you go into the inner chamber and hide. So the king of Israel said, take Micaiah, turn and return him to Amnon, the governor of the city, and Joash the king's son and say thus says the king put this fellow in prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and the water of affliction until I come in peace so you notice king Ahab wants to hear nothing still of this prophecy after all that that was just revealed to him shows you where the condition of his heart is that he's become so hardened that God in a sense just allows him to perpetuate the hardness of heart because he says here you know what get this guy out of my sight Bring him away. Send him back to where he was. Go put him in prison, he says. Give him the bread and water of affliction. He says, 
notice, look at the end of verse 27, until I come back in peace. In other words, who does this guy think he is that I'm going to not survive? You keep him in prison until I come back in peace from this battle. What's he doing? He's denying a prophecy from the Lord. He's quenching the Spirit of God. He doesn't want to hear what God's Spirit. So he's refusing that prophecy that just came from a true prophet of God saying, I'm going to come back in peace from this battle. But Micaiah said, If you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Take heed, all you people. Verse 29, So the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now, apparently, King Ahab, though he played tough guy, must have still been struggling in his conscience a little bit that something might happen to him bad in the battle because they're about to enter into the battle and he turns to Jehoshaphat, the other king. And of course, when you enter into conflict, who are you going to try and kill? You kill the commander, right? That's the prime target. So he says, hey, we're going to go into this battle together and shows you what kind of friend he was. He says, look, how about we do this? I'm going to disguise myself like a common soldier so I don't have all my kingly robes. You put on your king's robes. I'll dress like a common soldier and let's go out to battle. What do you think, bud? I mean, it shows you where this guy's at. He's completely just self-serving. And it shows you how crazy Jehoshaphat must be because he actually goes along with it. Jehoshaphat should have said, "Ah, pardon me there? We're both kings. You want me to wear my robes in the battle and look like a king and you want to go in disguised just like a common warrior so nobody recognizes you and comes after you? But again, watch the sovereignty of God because even though he's trying to hide from God's will, even though he's thinking he can escape God's plan, right? And who doesn't do that? Oh, I, I I can escape. I won't get caught. I'll hide from God. Didn't that start out in the Garden of Eden? I'll just hide from God. I'm going to put on a disguise. Then God won't be able to find me. I'll be safe. (laughs) I'm going to disguise. God won't be able to find me. Puts on his outfit. Verse 31. Now the king of Syria had commanded 32 captains of the chariots saying, fight with no one, small or great, but he says, only with the king of Israel. In other words, he commands his soldiers, put all of your focus and attention on assassinating the king of Israel, Ahab, because that was who was responsible for this battle. So that's who they're looking for. So it was when the captains, verse 32, of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, because he's the only one in king's robes, they said, surely it is the king of Israel. There he is. That's Ahab, king of Israel. Therefore, they turned aside to fight against him and Jehoshaphat cried out. <laughs> what, do you, what do you say at that point? It's not me. It's not Ahab. It's not Ahab. Or maybe he cried out in prayer he was a godly man because that would have been a dead giveaway because then the soldiers would have said, that can't be Ahab. Because if he's praying, that cannot be Ahab. (laughs) So he cries out, don't, don't shoot. It's, It's not Ahab. I'm not the king of Israel. And it happened when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel that they turned back from pursuing him. So again, here's Jehoshaphat. As I said earlier, He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. He should not have even been in that battle. And that's a very close call. Basically, Jehoshaphat almost just lost his life there because of making poor decisions and getting into situations he should not have got himself involved in. 
And again, what another lesson. Does God intervene? Is God merciful? Does he spare Jehoshaphat? Yeah, but that was a close call there for Jehoshaphat. I don't know if you've ever been there before where you make some poor choices and you get yourself into a spot and kind of, you know, you cry out to the Lord and by God's mercy in the skin of your teeth, God gets you out of something. And you kind of realize afterwards, you know, well, that was a really close call there. Literally, my life was hanging in the balances because I made some really poor decisions and I didn't seek the Lord and thankfully, God was merciful here and he spares Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat could have got killed in that instance there. But God's merciful to him. They recognize that's not Ahab. They pull back. Now, verse 34, I love this verse, what it communicates. Now, a certain man, Joe Guachagalupe, just some guy, launches a bow at random, or takes a, drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor so he said to his driver the chariot turn around and take me out of the battle for I am wounded so they stop pursuing Jehoshaphat they come back and then just notice it just says a certain man this wasn't their sharpshooter this wasn't their best assassin from the navy seals this is just some guy I don't maybe he was even bored maybe he was just depressed because they found out Jehoshaphat wasn't Ahab and, he's, and he had his sword, you know, his, his uh, bow drawn, and, and he's ready to just launch at Jehoshaphat. And, oh, it's not him. Oh, and he just, he just launches an arrow. It says randomly, he just launches an arrow up in the air, not even aiming at anything, no purpose behind his shot, but yet that random arrow that is fired by this random man who nobody knows it says went and struck the king of Israel right between the joints the creases of his armor that random arrow launched by a person that was completely meaningless and had no purpose behind it it was like a guided missile from heaven's standpoint God took that random event and used it to fulfill his divine purpose exactly like he went that's all it took for God to do Look at here, this guy thinking he's so crafty. I'm going to disguise myself. God's not going to get me. I'm going to get out of that. And, and, and God just uses a random arrow from some random person who doesn't even know what he did. He probably didn't even know that it struck Ahab. And he ends up hitting somebody who looks like just a soldier because nobody knows what Ahab looks like. He's disguised. And it goes right into, obviously, an area that causes a mortal wound for Ahab. You look at things like that, and again, you realize, as I said, God's sovereignty, man. God's providence. God controls everything. God can take the most random, natural, everyday occurrences, what seem like everyday routine things, and God can use those things for his supernatural purposes. Just the most everyday natural things. God can coordinate and orchestrate those things for exactly what he wants, which was here, to bring about judgment against Ahab. And again, what a, a neat thing to see how God just so controls everything that happens in everyday events and uses them for his plans and purposes. Verse 35, the battle increased that day and the king was propped up in his chariot. He probably wanted to look like he was still in charge, so he has himself propped up, though he's bleeding out. And then ultimately he died at evening. And the blood ran from the wound onto the floor of the chariot. And then as the sun was going down, a shout went throughout the army saying, every man to his city and every man to his country. Notice, just like the prophecy, Ahab dies and all of his soldiers scatter now. And they all run away to their own locations. They realize their king has died. And their king, it says, was brought, verse 37, to Samaria. 
And then they buried King Ahab in Samaria in his capital and someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken. That is what Elijah had said that the dogs would lick up his blood when he died. Verse 39, Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house which he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab rested with his fathers and then Ahaziah, and we'll pick up who he is as we get into Second Kings, Ahaziah, his son, now reigned in his place. Verse 41 returns us back to give us a little insight about jo- Jehoshaphat's life. Uh, it says, verse 42, Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he had became king and he reigned, notice, 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, uh, the daughter of Shilhi, And he walked in all the ways of his father Asa, who again was another godly king he had learned from his father. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Also, Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. We saw that in our preceding verses. This was one of the mistakes that he made with King Ahab as well as we'll see he continued to struggle with this area as we go on. Verse 45, now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, the might that he showed, how he made war, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And we will see there is an extended account in Chronicles, really Second Chronicles 17 through 20, multiple chapters are dedicated to the life and the godly decisions and many of the good things that Jehoshaphat did do. We don't get much really in regards to his life in 1 Kings here. And the rest, verse 46, of the perverted persons who remained in the days of his father Asa, he banished from the land. So notice, he took a very strong stand against immorality. It says that he did not tolerate the you know perverted from the promiscuity the sexual immorality the things again many times those were references to what were temple prostitutes to male prostitutes homosexuals and it says notice that he took a stand for what was moral and righteous he literally says banish them from the land because he didn't want their activity to corrupt the moral fiber work of the nation he took a stand against such things rather than just tolerating or encouraging them Verse 47 tells us, And there was no king in Edom in that day, only the deputy of the king. And Jehoshaphat made merchant ships to go to Ophir for gold. But they never sailed, for the ships were wrecked at Izion-Geber. And then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships But Jehoshaphat would not. So at some point he started to learn his lesson. Ahaziah is offering the same idea here to keep serving together. He refuses and Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Now, take note, if you would, again, back in verse 48, the little insight the Bible gives to us. Before in verse 49, he tells Ahaziah, no, I don't want to partner with you and make ships and go together. That was only after, it seems, another poor decision he had made, which is referenced in verse 48, where it says he made merchant ships to go out and try and acquire gold. But the Bible says they never sailed because the ships were wrecked 
before they ever set sail. Now, the account in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 tells us that the reason those ships were wrecked and never sailed was because God said directly to Jehoshaphat, because you've allied yourself with the ungodly, the Lord has destroyed your works. In other words, it seems that he, with an effort to want to prosper, to go out and get himself some gold, to gain some material wealth, to increase his prosperity and increase his wealth, if you would, made an alliance with Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, who was, again, a wicked king. And they were partnering together and they had all these plans to send out their ships and, hey, we're going to make some money. And we're going to partner together and we're going to go get all this gold and we're going to get rich and we're going to get ahead. And he's making this alliance that's outside of God's will. It's motivated by greed. All he wants to do is just get ahead financially. He's not considering is this God's will? Is this God's plan? Is this God's purpose? He's thinking strictly on a carnal level about just enriching himself personally. And he makes these ships and he's ready to launch his ships. And it says before he could launch his ships, they never sailed because they were wrecked. And Second Chronicles says the way they were wrecked is because God wrecked his ships before they sailed. And again, I look at that and I think to myself, man, thank goodness that God loves us enough that sometimes when we get our little ideas and we're ready to launch something or set sail to something, that sometimes God loves us enough that he says, before you launch out and shipwreck, I'll just wreck your ships before they ever sail. (laughs) I'll just poke holes in your boats and I'll just destroy everything before you ever launch out off the dock because much better than go right out into the middle of the deep blue sea and get halfway out into something and then you suffer a major shipwreck out in the middle of nowhere. It's a lot harder to recover from a shipwreck, is it not? And so sometimes God loves us enough that he says, look, I see what you're doing. I see what you're pursuing. I see where you're trying to go. I'm just going to wreck your ships before they ever set sail, son. I'm just going to stop it ahead of time. And again, that's just the the love of the Lord that he, again, not only rules, but sometimes he overrules even our plans and shuts things down and closes doors for us. That's such a gracious act of God sometimes. Verse 51 tells us Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. He reigned two years over Israel. And verse 52 tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother. Again, that's Jezebel, remember she was like, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the first wicked king that set the stage for all other wicked kings who made Israel sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. So unfortunately, Ahaziah, and we'll see his life as we get into 2 Kings next time, Ahaziah, much like his father, was a wicked man. He was an ungodly, evil king in the days of Israel. It says there in verse 52, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, that he made Israel sin by serving the Baals and worshiping, provoking the Lord to anger with the same kind of evil his father had done. But take notice, and I think perhaps the Holy Spirit is purposely revealing something to us there in verse 52. This man who did evil in the sight of the Lord, what was part of what contributed to him doing evil in the sight of the Lord? When you look again in verse 52, it says he walked in the way of his father, wicked King Ahab, He walked in the way of his mother, 
wicked Jezebel, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin. In other words, notice three times that reference that he walked in the ways of other ungodly people. He basically just embraced the bad patterns and the bad habits of other people that are around him. In his situation, it was the bad habits and the bad ways of his father, the bad habits and the bad ways of his mother, and the bad habits and bad ways of someone else that people in the society looked up to in that day that was one of their first kings. And this contributed to him walking in the wrong way himself. Look, I think a good question to ask ourselves in our life, whose ways do you walk in? Whose ways do you walk in? Do you, do you walk in the ways of your parents just because that's how your parents lived? And listen, I don't mean no disrespect. We should honor our mother and father. But if there are ways that your parents walked in that aren't according to the ways of the Lord, you shouldn't walk in those ways. You should break the chain. You should start a new pattern. You should walk in a different way and live in a different way. You should walk, I should walk in the ways of the Lord. We have to be careful whose ways we walk in. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Those are the kind of ways we want to walk in. If you want to walk in someone else's ways, find someone who's following Jesus Christ. Find someone who's walking in the way of the Lord and walk in that way. Let that be the way that you emulate because that will then put you on a course where you do what's right in the sight of the Lord rather than just emulating and following the patterns of unhealthy people who are just going to bring you into the same unhealthy experiences. Whose ways do you walk in? I encourage you, evaluate your life. Who are the examples in your life? Who do you look at and say, I want to I walk in their ways. I want to follow their path. Walk in the ways of the Lord. So look for people who are walking in the ways of the Lord and that will keep you from doing things that will lead to regrets in your life. Let's stand. Let's pray together.